In ages past, there lived a mysterious dwarven wizard king named Mobius Spin. Through his adventures, Mobius had accomplished many great deeds. However, as his life cycle was coming to an end, the great wizard king wanted to preserve his life's work and protect the power he had gained before the constraints of his mortal bonds were broken forever. So he created a deck of cards infused with his essence, each card representing an important aspect from his deep well of knowledge. Through these cards, he would share his magic with worthy individuals to aid them in their quests, while maintaining the balance of power in the world in his absence. The Mobius Deck of Wonders is full of beautifully illustrated magic item cards that invite player interaction while putting game masters in complete control of their games. It's usable with any tabletop RPG system, and it's live on Kickstarter right now. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about freelancing. We're talking about what it looks like to work as a professional freelancer, to make an income um, maybe a secondary, but maybe a primary income as a freelancer. Talking to John Brieger, a professional freelancer. John, welcome to the show. Hi, it's uh, great to be on. Yeah, man, glad to have you. I'm excited to talk about this. This is something that comes up a lot in the Facebook groups. I get emails sometimes from people saying, hey, I want to get in, into the industry. I want to freelance. I want to you know, make an income off of this. Some people want to do full-time. Some just want to do it as a side gig. So I'm interested to see kind of how you got into it, how you, you know, kind of your journey into it. And then, you know, what the normal day in the life looks like. Cause I feel like it's one of those things that people maybe uh, put up on a pedestal and they think, gosh, if I could just do this, then my life would be perfect. And I, I'm willing to bet, willing to wager that uh, your life didn't just become perfect uh, whenever you made the leap into doing this thing full time. So anyway, excited to talk if to you first. Only, if, yeah, if, if only, if only I had the, the secrets to a, to a perfect life for <laughs> all of the listeners. Uh, yeah. No, uh, I mean, I'm I'm really excited to dive in just because I think there's a lot of roles within the board game industry that aren't as necessarily visible to consumers and even to designers necessarily in terms of a lot of publishers really rely on freelance contractors to get uh, huge bulks of work done on projects. Uh, so the major kind of freelance roles that you see contracted out a lot. Obviously you have uh, illustrators and artists, very few of those are in-house at the publishers. And then you have uh, graphic designers, editors, writers, um, and what I do primarily, which is gameplay development. And so, you know, some publishers are gonna have a mix of those in-house, some of them are gonna be contracting those out. Yeah, definitely. Before we get into that though, let's, no, you're throwing off my rhythm. You're throwing off my, my scheduling, the way this thing works, because if anyone's listening to the show, they know the first question that I ask is, how'd you get into game design? How'd you get into that? And then we'll get into like the freelance and stuff in a minute, but like just the bare basics, what what brought you into this uh, way back when? Uh, so I started designing games, uh, let's see, I guess that the very first game I designed that was very, very bad was while I was in high school with a, a couple friends of mine. Um, but I started taking it a little more seriously while I was in college. I was studying uh, art and design, and I was doing a lot of game projects as part of my coursework. And basically, you would just make the game, you'd play test it like once, you'd make one iteration, you'd turn it in, it would never go anywhere. Uh, and I did a bunch of those, and I really enjoyed it. And then 
I left school and went to work uh, doing design and design research for retail stores. So building big, immersive physical experiences. And that's kind of my specialty. And so I was doing a lot of uh, re customer research work and a lot of kind of big immersive design. And I had a very particular contract with Apple. Uh, so I couldn't work on any digital products outside of work, nothing that had anything to do with anything digital. And that's just part of the way that they structure their IP agreements. Mm -hmm. And so I started making board games for fun in my spare time. And then uh, as the rabbit hole kind of goes, uh, then I was making lots more board games in my spare time. And then I was like working in my spare time. And then eventually I left Apple to go full time in the board game industry. Yeah, very cool. Now, when we say freelancer, what is, uh, give me a good working definition. What does that mean? Uh, so a freelancer is a contract worker who is going to work for a lot of different clients. Uh, and so rather than working for one specific company or on one specific product, uh, they're going to kind of float around and work for multiple people, sometimes multiple at a time, sometimes one at a time. Uh, but in general, freelancer just meaning I, you know, you can kind of hire me and I'm going to come and help you with your game. Yeah, definitely. And like you said just a moment ago, it could be illustration, it could be development, it could be playtesting, it could be writing, it could be a lot of different things. And I feel like, like, like you're saying, a lot of people don't realize how many people probably touch a game that maybe their name's not on the box, but that are actually, you know, contributing a great deal to the games that we enjoy. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and even there's freelancers beyond kind of what I would call like the production side of the game and, mm -hmm. you know, freelancers for logistics, freelancers yeah. for running your Kickstarter campaign, for helping you with your marketing. And, you know, a lot of the board game industry does, you know, the, it's small, small companies. And so sometimes when there's projects that are really awesome, but there's not quite enough staff at the publisher to cover them, that's when, when freelancers are brought in. Yeah, it's a good point. I've recently hired someone to help me with logistics, who, you know, just a guy that freelances, uh, help, helps people out with their, you know, Kickstarter fulfillment and things like that, because it was stuff I had no idea about, and I needed to learn. And I, the last thing I wanted to do is make a, you know, giant mistake with, with the shipping of a game. And so, yeah, I reached out and found a freelancer for that. It's a good point. There's so many avenues into the game world that, uh, yeah, I feel like more people just need to be, kind of be aware of these things. Because like with yeah. this guy, he, he, kind of did this stuff on the side, right? And, and it was, he's like, oh, I could, you know, I could help people and make money at this. This is something I'm good at, something I enjoy, and I could also, you know, do it in this way. So maybe if you're sitting here listening to this and you're thinking, gosh, I do this all day long with my normal job, you know, whether it's taxes or whatever, like what does that look like to kind of switch that angle just a little bit? And maybe you could help in the board game industry in some way based on stuff you already have the knowledge about. Maybe not game design, but maybe something totally different. Yeah, and that's that's the thing I I always talk about people who are, are want to get into the board game industry is if you look at what you do and the skills that you have and think about skills that any small business is going to need, right? Uh, you know, publishers are going to need that thing too, mm -hmm. um, and there's so many things to do that aren't publishing game design and art and illustration. And I think those are kind of the three most visible roles within the industry, but there's so much more that goes into making a game. Um, so, you know, just on one recent project that I wrapped up, I think we had maybe 12 people attached to the project, maybe 13. And only one of those was the full-time person from the publisher. 
Wow, that's crazy. I think that's something a lot of people just don't don't realize. Well, let's get into a little bit more of how you made the jump. So what what kind of happened for you to go, okay, I want to do this full time. I'm going to quit my job at Apple. I'm going to take the leap. Uh, you know, I'm sure it was a big risk at the time, you know, if you saying, all right, I'm going to jump all in. Tell me about that process and kind of what you're what you were thinking. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I was definitely ter- terrified. I'm still, you know, terrified all the time. And I think if if that type of risk doesn't scare you, then you're probably maybe a little, little overconfident. Um, but I, you know, part of it was that I really was ramping up the amount of freelance work I was doing on the side, you know, I was uh, doing development part time, I was making my own games and licensing those to publishers. And uh, it got to a point where I was kind of turning down people who wanted to pay me to make games. And at the same time, uh, you know, I was having some family issues and I was burning out real hard from kind of working two jobs. And I really needed a job that let me have more flexibility so that I could spend time with my family. I really loved working for Apple and I, I really, really enjoy the work that I did there. I didn't leave because like, oh no, I had this terrible job that I had to leave uh, to go do the fun job. It was more that I was looking for kind of a change in my life as well as just wanting to go make board games. And so the fact that I could have the freedom to go spend time with some ill family members and uh, set my own schedule every day and kind of focus on my own health, like that was a huge, huge factor in my decision to go full-time. Um, now, obviously there was a lot of lead in into going full-time. I didn't just like walk in and quit my job one day. So <laughs> I was freelancing on the side. I, uh, left my job last August. So I've only been full-time for uh, a little under a year. We're coming up on the, on a year, probably right around the time when this, this episode airs. Yeah. And so, uh, I went to Gen Con kind of knowing I was looking to leave and I lined up kind of, you know, six or seven soft commitments for projects. So, you know, these weren't contracts that I signed on the spot, but just pretty firm commitments of people who were going to give me work in the fall so that I could essentially just hit the ground running. Hmm. And then that first kind of two, three months, uh, after, I went full time. I was not, I wasn't really full time. I was actually like 35 hours a week or 30 hours a week. And then slowly ramped into it as we moved towards 2019. Yeah, that's awesome. And this kind of reminds me of some of the best advice I ever got as far as a job. And it's always go to something, not away from something. You know, I think a lot of people make really bad choices because they're trying to leave a bad situation and they're, they're getting away from it. It's like it's better to go towards something that, you know, is, is a better situation. And so, like, there's a lot of people that are thinking, gosh, I want to just quit my day job. But maybe maybe give them some advice. What would you say? Like, did you have a certain amount of money saved up, you know, a certain amount, you know, number of months expenses? Like, what was your process of getting to that point where, you're, where you felt, felt confident enough to quit your day job and not just like hide under the bed out of, you know, fear of like what's going to happen next? Yeah. And, and obviously this is going to be different for everyone. I'm very lucky that I was in a position where I was leaving a job where I had saved a lot of money. Um, and so, you know, I could afford to not be really profitable in my first year or so uh, as a freelancer. But obviously I, I recognize that there's a lot of people who aren't necessarily in that position. Right. I highly recommend 
having some some buffer money saved, you know, regardless of what your plan is in terms of breaking even, not breaking even in your first, you know, six months, your first year, because if you get sick or, um, you know, you get in a car crash or, you know, something happens where you are unable to work or you have a family emergency, there's no vacation pay when you're a freelancer. Hmm. So you need to have that buffer. And so you like, you know, regardless of kind of how big that buffer is for you personally, if you're a freelancer and you're paycheck to paycheck, it can be really, really hard. Um, and so I obviously wanted to make sure I talked design is an industry that has a lot of freelancers within it. So I talked to other friends who were freelancing full time uh, in in design roles, but not in the board game industry about kind of how they were structuring things. And essentially what they said is, you know, set up, uh, you have your kind of like personal savings account and you, they pay themselves their salary out of their savings account and then run their business through their business account and try not to have to pay themselves all the time out of their business account. Uh, otherwise you, if you hit that kind of soft period where work turns down or you can't work, uh, you'll, you'll, you can end up in a hole really, really quickly. So I saved some money to do that, that prep work, uh, lining up clients, making sure that you actually are going to be able to have the work coming in. Now, obviously you're hoping when you go full time that your workload is going to grow, right? That you're going to find new clients, that you're going to get awesome new projects. But if you don't have a couple lined up, if you just quit your job and say, now I'm a freelancer, it's going to take a while for you to build that reputation, to build that trust where people are going to start hiring you. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of that kind of thing, how does, how does this structure work? Like when someone contracts you for development or playtesting or whatever, how does it work? Do they pay you hourly? Do they kind of give you, like, do you quote them for the project? Like you say, oh, I think this is going to be about a thousand dollar project from what you're wanting, half up front, half at the end. Like, what does that look like? Um, so yeah, so one, one thing we haven't really dived too deep into is, is what I do as a freelancer. So I'm a game developer. Uh, you've talked to a couple other game developers on the show. Uh, and in general, I specialize on, in taking a prototype and turning it into a final product is what I always say. So that includes things like running playtesting programs, mathematical balancing, analysis, um, product kind of feature additions to make the, the game more marketable. Uh, content development, uh, standalone sequels, expansions, all that kind of thing can be within the the remit of a developer. So how I get paid depends one, what the scope of the project is. So if you wanted to hire me to come in and look at your game and just give you my opinion, uh, that would probably be an hourly project. So, you know, I would, you know, do somewhere between two and five hours of work. I'd bill you for my time. Uh, you'd say, cool, John, I'm glad you you were able to come help out. And then that might be the end of it. But a lot of what I do is long form kind of end to end development on a product. So as we're recording, actually, we just wrapped uh, the Fiends and Familiars expansion for role player, R-O-L-L player. Uh, and so that's one where I work with Thunderworks games on the development of their titles, uh, kind of end to end. So after the prototype is initially ready, uh, I come on board and run, you know, several months of playtesting, uh, of analysis, of making new content, coming up with uh, new features like in uh, Fiends and Familiars. It was the new kind of dice that was something that I added during development. 
Uh, and those are typically played in what we call milestone flat fee. So there's a pot of money um, for simplicity's sake, we'll say it's $10,000, but that's, uh, you know, obviously that's not necessarily what I would get paid for any small, for a small game. Um, and I might get paid 25% of that upfront right before I start the project. I might get, so I get that 2,500 upfront, then I might get paid in, you know, a quarter of that each time I deliver a milestone. So when I deliver the, the first uh, streamlined draft, when I deliver the player scaling, when I deliver all the additional content. And so that makes things easier in a, in a couple ways. One, it's less overhead on me as a freelancer in terms of billing and invoicing. Um, and that's something you, you will learn very quickly. Um, if you are freelancing or if you have not run your own business before, which uh, I really had not before going freelance, um, that the things that take up so much time aren't always just doing the work itself but it's all of the things that surround you being able to do the work, uh, making sure that you're booking uh, work and acquiring clients, uh, screening clients so that you don't take on jobs that are a bad fit. Right. Uh, and then writing the contracts, billing and invoicing and all those little things about running your business are just as important to being a freelancer as actually being good at your job and having some expertise in your field. Yeah, definitely. Let's go a little bit deeper into that as far as screening out clients and whatnot. Something I saw recently is a business uh, video just on YouTube and a guy was talking about hiring freelancers and things like that. And he talked about make sure you know what you're hiring. Uh, are you hiring a consultant or are you hiring a rescuer? And, you know, because bad things can happen if you think you're hiring somebody to come in and save the day when they don't necessarily understand it that way. And so, like, help me understand what, what, what your process is of, you know, taking on new clients, screening them, kind of what you look at and go, mm, maybe this is not the best fit. Oh, this is a great fit. That kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, my clients are primarily publishers. I do accept designers as clients as well, though I'm a little more selective about that process. Um, so primarily people who hire me are small publishers who are looking to grow, uh, but don't quite have the full-time capacity or even some of, some of these people are part-time themselves uh, to release more games. So I look for people who have already released a couple games and are looking to grow their publishing line. Um, and why I shy away from working with first-time designers or first-time publishers as much is that I try to have a very narrow scope of what I do within uh, the game's production cycle. So I'm generally only focused on the game and product development. And what I found is when I work with publishers who maybe aren't as experienced, I also end up being kind of a general business consultant in where I'm doing a lot of work teaching them about uh, kind of the logistics of running a small publishing business in the board game industry. And I'm not net really an expert on those things. Like I, I certainly have picked things up uh, from just kind of general industry knowledge and, and talking with my other clients and seeing how they run things. And so I, I know some things, but I, I don't want to hold myself out as an expert on those things. And I don't want them to, uh, think they're getting something different than, than what they are. Right. So I want to set expectations really clearly. And so that's, that I think goes back to that, you know, rescuer versus consultant is I really try to 
set expectations clearly at the start of a project about, you know, what is it that is within my scope and what isn't within my scope. And then as, as every freelancer does inevitably, I think, um, sometimes that changes, right? Your scope increases over the course of the project. Um, but you also really have to be willing to say no, right? When, uh, when a client asks you, you know, I'm a pretty reasonable graphic designer, but not like I wouldn't necessarily hire myself out as a production designer. Mm-hmm. Um, so when a client's like, hey, can you make me the graphic design for my, you know, reviewer prototypes? Uh, I have to say no, right? And and I'm like, well, you know, I'll make the design for the prototypes for playtesting because that's the scope of my work. But doing your production level graphic design is not in our contract. And you have to be willing to set those boundaries and, and enforce them or you're going to have all your projects kind of balloon out of control. Yeah, I think that's a great point as far as uh, boundaries and just being clear. I think clarity is really the name of the game in this stuff. And this definitely goes for a young, you know, a new publisher reaching out and finding illustrators, finding developers, graphic designers, whatever. I was actually talking to an artist that I just hired for a game project I'm working on. And um, in our conversation, he said, just, just so we're clear, this is only for the illustrations, right? And I was like, uh, uh, yeah, like I've already got a graphic designer. He's like, okay, cool. Because the last project he worked on, he delivered all the illustrations. And then the, the company, the board game company was like, oh, we thought you were going to do the graphic design too. It's like, wait, wait what? <laughs> like this, hold on, hold on, hold on. And so it, it's kind of funny how sometimes people just, they have this idea in their head of what they think they're getting. And if you're not super clear and you don't have, you know really set out the boundaries, it could lead to some uh, kind of interesting uh, problems down the road with, with you know missing expectations or, or people just being upset about different things. And so I think clarity goes a long way. Now, here's a quick yeah. question that maybe uh, some people are thinking, what is the difference between being a freelance designer and a freelance developer? Like, kind of walk me through some of the differences. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do design as well. Um, so I'm still kind of licensing my own designs to publishers. That's something that you, that process you've talked about a, a good amount on the show. So uh, just to recap really quickly, designer, comes up with a design, play tests it, gets it to a point where they think it's pretty polished, approaches a publisher, and the publisher licenses that design from them, typically for a royalty fee, so some percentage of every copy sold. Um, so that's a typical designer-publisher relationship. You also can self-publish your own designs, um, right, which is something you've explored as well. And and there, right, then you're just taking it kind of end-to-end. So a developer typically comes in after a project has been picked up by a publisher or after a project has been started by a publisher. So you've signed your game to the publisher, um, you know, and let's just say it's, you know, uh, you know, the, the blah, blah, blah company and the blah, blah, blah company looks at your game and says, well, this is really good. Like we saw it, we met with Gabe and we really loved it but it's two to four players. And we really think that for us to market it, it needs to go to five players. Now they might kick it back to you, the designer and say, hey, can you make this go to five players? But they also might use either their internal development or a outside developer like myself to take the game and refine it to exactly what their kind of market tastes are. And so uh, that's a lot of what I do is looking at the prototypes that come in from designers that are already good. They're already have something that's really special about them. And then 
figuring out how to kind of package that into the most marketable product, right? Are there uh, features that need to be added, uh, things like solo modes or player count expansions? Uh, are we going to develop a mini expansion that's going to go right in the box because it's a Kickstarter campaign and you want extra content? Um, as well as things that kind of what I would call the kind of the classical remit of a developer, which is kind of cleaning up the game, streamlining the rules, um, you know, searching for weird edge cases, mathematical balancing. And I think those are the things that if you ask most designers, what does a developer do? They're going to answer kind of those things like balancing, streamlining the rules, cleaning it up. And they don't see a lot of the kind of other work that developers do in terms of taking the prototype and, and really pushing it as a product um, and really being able to take it to that, that next level. Yeah. Now, is it more difficult to be a freelance designer or freelance developer? Are there different things to kind of be thinking about? Because they're, they're very, very different roles, like you're saying. And so like, what are some of the things that I should be thinking about if I want to be a freelance designer versus a freelance developer? Uh, so difficult is, uh, it's, it would certainly, I, I think it is certainly more difficult to be a full-time designer than it is to be a full-time developer. And part of that is about the nature of where the the work lives and kind of where the, the risk lives. So as a designer, most of the projects I work on uh, don't have a publisher attached to them, right? I, I make my design, I get it ready, and then I hope that it's good and that a publisher signs it. And I get paid, you know, a small amount when I sign the game and then maybe some some more small amounts when the game comes out, right? It's very hard to make a significant amount of money as a designer. So if you, you know, many designers I've talked to said, you know, they they want kind of six plus games coming out a year as a designer. Um, and you know how much work it is to get a game all the way done. So like to get six quality games out the door every year, that's that's a huge amount of effort on the design side. Now, maybe you have a big hit, right? And the, the royalties from that evergreen help kind of smooth the transition um, when you have uh, slower years or, or what have you. But you can't guarantee a hit. And so as a design, I would say definitely freelancing as a designer is hard, is much harder. Developer, you're coming in later in the process. There's someone who's already invested in taking the game to market. And I'm paid whether or not the game is a success. Now, some projects I have incentives on, right? Uh, like a small royalty that applies maybe just to the Kickstarter or just to the first, you know, 18 months of sales or or maybe even a full full royalty that's smaller than the designers would be. But I always am getting paid at some point along the way for the work that I'm doing. So if the game never came out, I'm still being compensated for my time. Uh, and, the, and part of the reason that, that needs to be the case is that I'm moving project to project as a freelancer very quickly. And as a developer, if the publisher decides uh, the project is canceled, I have nothing. Whereas if a designer, uh, if your publisher cancels your game, you get the rights to your game back and you might be able to improve it again and sell it to a new publisher, right? You own that intellectual property and you're just licensing it out. And so who is taking the risk? Where is the risk in their time? Where, you know, where they are in the life cycle of the project, I think 
is where that distinction comes in. Now, there are people who do essentially freelance as designers uh, full time, right? Uh, and we don't necessarily think of them as freelancers because they, you know, we just think of them as designers who work with multiple companies. But that that is really what they're doing. If you're a if you're a designer and you're working with multiple publishers, you're already essentially freelancing as a designer. Right. Another thing to think about from the design side is, okay, you signed a game. That's awesome. But now it's going to take a year, maybe two years, maybe three years, maybe five for the game to actually come out. And so there's a big gap in, you know, when you're going to make money. And so, especially when you're just starting out, you might sign, like you're saying, six games in a year. That's cool. But you might not get paid again for a year or two based on those games. And so I feel like, you know, there's, there's just a lot of risk on the front end. Uh, from a designer just because there's going to be giant gaps of time that you might not make any money, even though you have game signed, even though your you know, business is good technically, whereas developer, maybe you don't run yep. into that in the same way. Yeah. And, you know, and I, as I said, I, I am also a designer. And so I, I kind of treat my design and my development business as, as the same business. Um, and I just would say, you know, my, my design is maybe 10 to 15% of my revenue and my development is the other, you know, 85, 90%. Yeah. So design is still your, uh, it's still not your day job, but it's still something you do on the right. side. And that's, that's a cool way to do it. Yeah. And, and I, and I obviously really, I really enjoy designing games. You know, I would love it if in, you know, two years from now that balance is maybe more, you know, 20, 80 or 25, 75. But, you know, I, as I said, you, you really can't guarantee that. And the pipelines are so long. I have to think about like, the stuff I'm working on now is all going to come out next year or even the year after, right? Yeah, absolutely. Now, let me ask you about this. What would be this, the pros and cons of freelancing versus getting a job at a publisher and just working there, you know, working with one publisher on these projects? Give me kind of the, the positives and negatives. So the uh, the pros of going in-house somewhere. Uh, so keep in mind, right, I, I left a kind of in-house corporate design job to to go freelance. Um, your, your workload is, is going to be a little more stable, right? You know where your next paycheck is coming from. Uh, you don't need to spend the time to go to conventions to acquire work, right? So when I go to conventions, I'm there to find new projects, to meet with my current clients, to make sure everything's on track. Whereas if I'm in-house, right, I might be, whether I'm going to an office or working remote, a lot of in-house in-house and kind of air quotes developers actually work remote from their publishers. Um, you know, I know what my pipeline of projects is going to be because it's all the titles that publisher is going to do. Um, and so the, so the things that are really nice about that is I get to, you get to work with the same team over and over again. Uh, you get to build trust with the other members of the publisher in a way that uh, a freelancer might not be able to, because you're, you're not really an employee. Um, and you might be able to have more of an impact on things, uh, on kind of steering the ship a little bit, like what types of projects does the publisher sign? For example, uh, you might be able to have a little more influence on that kind of thing. If you're, if you're in-house versus freelance now it depends on the size of the company. Obviously, if you're a developer at fantasy flight, you're probably still not necessarily deciding what Asmodee is acquiring, but, um, you know, if you're a developer at a small company, you probably have a lot more influence on, or even might be participating in the acquisitions process yourself. Um, you know, you, I know you had uh, Seth Jaffe on the show, uh, who is a developer with Tasty Minstrel Games, TMG, 
And in addition to doing development work, Seth also will look at and evaluate prototypes at conventions. So he um, and the rest of the TMG development team have influence on, on what games are going to come out from them. Whereas when I work with my clients as a freelancer, uh, they've already picked what games are going to go into their line and I'm going to help them make those games the best possible. So on the flip side, what, what do I love about being a freelancer? Um, I get to set all my own schedule and hours, right? Uh, so, uh, that can be a double-edged sword. I, uh, you know, I work six days a week. I choose the day I take off every week. Generally it's actually Wednesday, which is funny because we're recording this on a Wednesday. Um, but, uh, that can present its own challenges because when convention season picks up, you know, May to June, I had about one day off in the span of 30 days because I was just constantly on the road for conventions. And so as a freelancer, you know, you get that, that freedom to pick your jobs, to pick your clients. Um, and I think one of the things I particularly really enjoy about the, the nature of the work is that every job is a very different challenge. And so the variety of projects I get by working with different publishers who have different house kind of styles and different gameplay styles is much greater than I would get if I was in-house and only working for a single publisher who's building a brand around a particular style of game. Yeah, definitely. And so, all right, you've mentioned, you know, pitching at cons and, and, you know, talking to publishers and getting contracts, stuff like that. What does that look like? Because as a designer, you know, if I go to a convention, I meet with a publisher, I say, okay, here's the game, here's how it works, here's the components, here's the sell sheet, that kind of thing. I'm pitching them this thing. But when you go, you're you're pitching like a totally different scenario, right? And it's like, what does it look like to pitch a publisher, especially when you're just starting out and maybe you don't have a long, you know, line of work to kind of point to a portfolio? Like, what does that look like to pitch to a publisher? Um, to me, it's there's kind of two major things that as a freelancer you offer a publisher, and this is this is kind of regardless of what what you're freelancing in. Uh, the first is you offer them expertise, right? So whatever it is that you're doing, you're saying I have a skill in this thing. Uh, you can hire me to do it for you, and I'm I'm probably going to do a better job than if you did it yourself. The other thing that you are offering them is time and attention. And if you have talked to any any publisher, anyone who has tried to publish a game, you know there's a million steps to getting a game to market. And one of the biggest things is a lot of my clients just don't have the time to make all the amazing things that they they could make if they had additional help. And if you are listening to this and you're like, oh, I'm a publisher, I'm in that situation, uh, reach out to me. <laughs> um, and so when I go to pitch to publishers, it's not just about talking about how awesome I am or whatever, how, you know, here are the games I've worked on. I actually haven't worked on, you know, too many games. Uh, I'm still pretty new to the industry. A lot of what I talk about is the process, how I work, how I run my playtesting programs. Um, you know, the, the numbers, the, the fact that I have a background in qualitative research and that I have expertise in running uh, these kinds of customer research and playtesting programs. And so I sell to the publishers based on kind of my expertise in the services more than I, I necessarily always sell based on my expertise in, in games. 
And then it's helpful, obviously, that I do have some games I can point to and look at. Um, but, you know, if you if you look at my portfolio, you know, I really only started being serious about the board game industry about three years ago or so. So I have very few releases under my belt. And so a lot of what I talk about is just kind of getting them to buy in to trusting me and building those connections. And sometimes it's not the first time I'm going to meet them that they're going to hire me. It's going to be the second time or the third time, or maybe uh, they saw me on Twitter where, where I write the playtesting tip of the day. And that was kind of the initial thing that helped build trust. Okay. John knows what he's talking about in terms of playtesting. Um, and then they meet me at a convention and they've already kind of seen my name somewhere before. Gotcha. Real quick. What's your Twitter handle so people can follow you? Yeah. Uh, my Twitter handle is at Das Brieger, uh, D-A-S-B-R-I-E-G-E-R. And if you follow me every weekday, I tweet a playtesting tip of the day. Uh, sometimes they're, you know, more practical, uh, like questions you can ask or uh, techniques you can use. Sometimes they're a little more philosophical. Uh, but in general, they're all kind of rooted in uh, my personal approach to playtesting, which is a, a very kind of professionalized research-based approach. Yeah, I really love a lot of stuff that you put out there. It's really, it's, it's either thought provoking or super just practical. And so I really um, love the tips that you put out there. I think, I think more people should follow you. Uh, let me kind of go back into what you were just talking about as far as pitching and, and talking to publishers. Would you recommend that somebody, maybe if they're trying to get started, right? And they have literally nothing to point to, they haven't done this before. What, what are your thoughts on reaching out to a publisher and kind of offering some free work and saying, hey, can I, can I work you know, on a game you got? You know, can I do some development work, show you what I can do? And then maybe we talk about coming on as a paid gig down the road. What are your thoughts? Um, I, I personally am, am kind of against free work. Um, I, I think that if you have really, truly no experience, um, what I would do is work as a, as I would design games first, go through the playtesting process, working on your own product, um, learn how to build up those skills um, in terms of playtesting. And then uh, the next step I would maybe look at if I was going to like, if, assuming I had no experience at all, maybe sign up to be some, part of the larger publishers playtesting programs um, where, you know, they don't compensate the, those playtesters super well. So often, you know, you're just getting free games or store credit or, or something similar, but that'll give you, um, you know, kind of practice prepping playtest reports, you know, session reports for publishers, et cetera. Um, doing development work for free, I would hesitate to do it just because the publisher isn't going to necessarily value your contribution. And most likely, if you were like, could I do this, do that same work? And you went to that same publisher and said, I'll do this for a discount. Just pay me minimum wage. They'll probably do it. Right. Um, now, as a freelancer, you need to be paid a lot more than minimum wage. And we can talk about pricing kind of separately from this. Um, but in general, right, if you're offering something that is, a, you know, a valuable skill, it's, you know, it's work, you should be paid for your time. And that's something that I, I really believe, like, I really believe in compensating people fairly for their time. And so when I hire people to work for me, obviously, you know, I don't try to rely on free work. Um, and so 
you know, I think there are people who that was their avenue into the industry. And I'm not saying that that's a necessarily like the worst ever way to get started. But I think the board game industry is growing up and is maturing and is professionalizing. And you should be able to find someone to pay you. Yeah. So let's keep talking about this. Tell me about the rates. Like, what does, what does that look like? Yeah. Um, so in general, you're going to be setting your rate based on a number of things. So my, my hourly rate goes anywhere from, you know, as low as 25 an hour to as high as a hundred dollars an hour. And how I'm picking that rate is depending on what the scope of services I'm providing is like, what, what is the type of work and is all I'm doing like video review, uh, you know, just watching videos of play tests and flagging times of when things happen. Am I doing mathematical analysis? Am I doing product development work? Am I doing, you know, significant, uh, interior design work for an immersive experience? Uh, and then part of that is the length of the engagement. So if you came to me and said, I need to hire you to do, you know, three hours of playtesting on my game, there, all of the time it took for us, for, to, uh, us to meet, me to acquire the work and uh, correspond with you about what the game was, us to confirm all the pricing, confirm the details, do the contract, right? None of that's counted towards the three hours. So what my hourly rate is for all that time I spent doing that job isn't really just the three hours that you're paying me. And so if you don't take into account kind of the hours that you spend running the business side of your business and you only charge, you know, oh, I want to earn $20 an hour. So you charge $20 an hour for your time. You'll end up earning way, way, way less than $20 an hour um, because that because you're still not being paid for, you know, the time you spend traveling to conventions or, you know, all the time you spend writing your contracts at home, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the longer a project is typically the lower my hourly rate goes, um, where, a you know, a many month long project, I try to make it so that I'm never working, you know, 40 hours a week for a single publisher. I'd rather have that project timeline be longer and be able to flexibly sp- slot it in. So if you are giving me a project that has a rush deadline where I have to work on it and push other clients work out of the way, um, that's obviously also going to come with a higher price tag. So the, the rates, you know, I think you, you need to figure out kind of generally what you need to get paid, but then also you need to figure out where are kind of the hidden costs in getting paid and how much do you have to increase your rate to kind of cover um, that kind of fixed time you spend on each job. And then last there's, uh, you know, kind of the, the pain in the neck charge, which is basically like if a job is, uh, you know, you want to work on it, but it's like, there's something about it. That's really weird or, uh, is going to just kind of be a pain in your neck. You know, maybe, maybe part of the playtesting program includes the fact that you need to hand assemble 50 copies of a game, right? you should charge more for this job being a pain in your neck. Um, And, uh, you know, so there's a really, really good, there's actually two really good books uh, that I highly recommend. The first is called Design is a Job, uh, and it's by uh, Mike Montero, I believe. 
And it's all about the process of uh, working the business of design from contracts to working with clients to working with other designers within a freelance agency. Uh, it's not about the board game industry specifically. It's about generally client and agency-based design, but it's super, super useful. Um, and then the other one is, uh, uh, well, the, the first word is uh, not maybe repeatable on this show, but it's called uh, <laughs> F.U. Pay Me. And uh, that's a talk by Mike Montero, uh, which is all about how to get clients to actually pay you the money that they owe you. Yeah, which is a val valuable skill. Of what I've learned and what I've seen, you know, I've got friends that are illustrators and artists and graphic designers. And man, a lot of times this, I think this is something we all struggle with as creative people. A lot of times creative people aren't great on the business side of things. And so, and a lot of times we have imposter syndrome and we feel like maybe we're not worth like $50 an hour or whatever it is. And so we kind of struggle on that side. So I think anything you can do as a creative to learn that side of things, learn to negotiate, learn to schedule things out, learn to charge people and get them to pay you, I think is a very, very valuable thing. So uh, yeah, those sound like really good things to, to look into. Now, walk me through like a day in the life. Like, let's talk through just kind of some day-to-day -day tasks, activities. What does it look like just as a freelancer? What does a normal day look like for you? Yeah. Um, so let's let's actually walk through today. I think today is a, a really good example of the different things that I do during a day. So uh, this is the first task of my day. I'm waking up and recording this podcast with you. Uh, so part of being a freelancer is promoting yourself. Uh, so I have a couple avenues that I do that. You know, I'm going to be on panels at conventions. I'm going to do some podcasts. I, obviously, I run my playtesting tip of the day. I might write some guest articles or blogs or or similar, but you need you know, part of running a business that people need to be aware of you. So uh, that might be something that I'm doing during day. After this, uh, I'm going to have a little coffee break, and then I'm going to dive into assembling a prototype for a new project I'm working on. Uh, so this is a game that uh, came into me. It was pretty rough. We've done some concepting for redesign, but we need to make that first prototype and get it to the table. Uh, after that, I have a contract to write uh, that's already been negotiated. So the terms are all set. And then I'm modifying my contract template to uh, fit the terms that have already been negotiated. I'm going to send that to the publisher. They're going to review it one time, then we're going to sign it. Um, then it'll probably be back to assembling that same prototype again, and then a playtesting session at the end of the day. And so, you know, that's a, a pretty typical balance of, of work for me, depending on where a project is in its cycle, right? Maybe that might also involve checking Kickstarter numbers, or uh, maybe I would be doing all day playtesting sessions or reviewing video footage instead of assembling prototypes. But day in, day out, I, uh, I wake up, I work from home. So I, I go to my kitchen table. I try not to, you know, work in my bed or anything. Um, I set up there, uh, I work probably, you know, eight to 10 hours a day, uh, with some breaks and, uh, you know, then that's kind of day in day out. The other things that I do that are kind of the big breaks in that schedule would be traveling to conventions. Um, I think I'm doing about 16 conventions wow. this year. So my next one will be Gen Con, which should be probably right around when this episode airs or this episode might air a little afterwards. Um, so then, right, I'm going to be, uh, assembling prototypes, packing them to go to the convention and at the convention, my day to day is a mixture of running playtesting sessions, 
meeting with my current clients to confirm our projects that are on track, uh, figure out what our timelines are for upcoming work, and then meeting with potential new clients, meeting with publishers to talk about, um, hey, you know, what can I do for you? What do you have coming up? Let's see what might be a good fit for us to work on together. Uh, and that's kind of the other big kind of day to days at this point. The conventions have their own routine to them because there's going to be so many of them in a year. Yeah, very cool. All right, so with the playtesting groups, is that like just your gaming group, or like how do you how do you create those groups for playtesting? Uh, so I have about thirty local groups. Uh, I'm fortunate that I live in a, a pretty large area of I live in the Bay Area of California, and so there's lots of local meetups in cafes and libraries and bars and game stores where you can go. Uh, to play games. So some of those are what I would call like uh, consumer groups, right? So these are meetups that are not dedicated to playtesting. They're people who want to come and play games and occasionally I'll bring a prototype and they'll play it. But the the majority of the group is dedicated to playing published games. Um, so I have about 30 of those local to me. And then there's also the designer meetups, which I find really useful where I go and these are dedicated to playtesting and a mixture of designers and people who aren't designers are going to rotate around and play different prototypes. I'm going to play prototypes from other designers and get feedback. And those groups are super useful because I'm getting kind of critique from my peers, from uh, colleagues, from people who have a little insight. But I think it's important that you don't just take your your game to playtesting night and call that your whole playtesting process um, because it's not really representative of the consumer market for who buys games. So I'm really always focused on finding the audience for the game and getting feedback from the people who really are in that target audience. And so to that end, I have my local groups, I have the design groups, and then I run a very large remote playtesting program. Uh, so I have about, I think, some, uh, last I checked where I'm at kind of th uh, 325 groups and growing of remote playtesters uh, who all fill out a screener survey about what kinds of games they like and enjoy. And then when I start new projects, I can match them up based on their kind of audience profile. Uh, so not I'm not using 300 groups for every project. I'm using you know 10 or 15 of those groups for each project and rotating between them uh, depending on the needs of the project. Yeah, so how do you keep track of all that? Like how do you maintain all those different groups and all that data? Do you have like certain software you recommend? Uh, spreadsheets, uh, <laughs> um, my remote playtesting is pretty much entirely run through Google drive and Google docs. Uh, so, you know, I do my, my playtester intake with a Google form, uh, which puts all their data into a spreadsheet. I then have a second layer on that spreadsheet where I'm recording notes, uh, activating people, that kind of thing. Um, I run my personal consulting business through Slack. So if you're a client and you hire me. Uh, you join my Slack instance, which is a kind of private instant messaging server uh, that also allows for, you know, uh, file attachments, you know, collaborative calls, et cetera. And so each project gets its own special chat channel within that where I'm in there, the publisher's in there, sometimes the designer or uh, another freelancer like an editor might be in there as well. And that helps kind of, that's kind of like my command hub for all my projects where if you're a client and you need you know, you need something that's probably the, the primary way you're going to contact me. Uh, rather than email, we can just have a really quick back and forth conversation and settle the issue right away. Yeah, awesome. 
Well, John, this has been great, man. Do you have any have any advice for somebody that's maybe thinking about going into freelancing, you know, kind of trying to figure out, trying to test the waters? What advice would you give them now that you've done this for about a year? Looking back, what do you what do you wish people had told you? Yeah, well, so I was doing it for part time uh, for about a year and a half, two years before I went full time. And and I think that was really, really helpful. Um, you know, I would if you were interested in doing development work. Uh, just try to pick up, you know, a job uh, part-time, uh, you know, just doing a couple hours a week of like running a playtest, giving feedback to the publisher, helping them work through some issues um, and see how you like kind of managing that relationship, how you like managing the flow of the project. Um, you know, unfortunately, I do still think the best way to acquire development work is going in person to conventions. And I, I wish that it wasn't that way because I think that's a barrier that keeps a lot of people out. Uh, but that would still be my, my number one piece of advice if you're interested in becoming a freelancer within the board game industry is try to go to some conventions and start talking to the publishers who are going to be your clients. Uh, because if you don't have all that experience, if you don't have the, the reputation uh, building that in-person face-to-face trust and communication is going to be a huge, huge help in getting you hired. And so that's a lot of the way that I did it when I was starting out. It's the way I'm still doing it. I, you know, I definitely still think of myself as still pretty new to a lot of this. And so even now, the majority of my clients are coming from those face-to-face meetings and those in-person connections more than they're coming from people who are, you know, reaching out via Twitter or reaching out via email or my website. Awesome. Well, cool, man. Hey, this has been great. Do you have any closing thoughts? Anything you want to kind of leave people with? Um, I think just uh, if you are interested in trying to get deeper involved in the board game industry in a role that's not design or publishing, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me and just be like, Hey, these are the things I do. Do you know anyone who's looking for those things? Because chances are that, that I am, or I can at least point you in the direction of someone who knows more than me. Um, you know, board games are, are growing and professionalizing. And so there's a, there's a lot of need for things that aren't just game design right now. And I think, uh, you know, Every, more and more publishers are recognizing the need to put out uh, quality titles that are going to stand out from the market. And so I, it's actually, I think it's a really competitive time to be a publisher and a really competitive time to be a game designer. And because of that, I think it's a really excellent time to be a game developer. Yeah, definitely. Well, cool, man. I really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Good luck with all the development and all the projects you have uh, coming down the road and everything else you got going on right now. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?